Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we unpack the concept of identitarianism, one of the three components of the nexus. We explain what we mean by identitarianism, the problems with it, and what we suggest we do instead. So welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. Um, yeah, so today we're going to be talking about identitarianism. Um, it's something that we talk about constantly and have never like in unpacked in depth yeah so we decided that we would um get into that uh today yeah it's basically going to be like a one-on-one episode where we sort of define what we mean by it and talk about some of the components of it and like we've done that for uh cancel culture and for social media already so this is going to be your your third nexus component 101 yeah yeah because you know i mean in the nexus like whatever it all happens on social media and it's all sort of like held together by cancel culture but a lot of the or really all of the content of the Nexus is identitarian in nature. It's yeah. just stuff about identity. Totally. And actually, in a weird way, um, the identitarian aspect of the Nexus is, in some ways, even more than cancel culture, is the one that you're really not allowed to talk about right. or unpack or criticize in any kind of way. Um, and so people are really afraid to do that because people like rightly so, like don't want to be seen as upholding systems of oppression. And basically if you critique identitarianism, you're basically seen as upholding systems of oppression. Yeah. Usually within the rules of sort of like liberal identitarianism, that is, that's what they think for sure. Yeah. And they think that like an identitarian approach is the approach and the only approach that you could possibly have that anyone has ever had to combating things like sexism or racism or, like, any other sort of... Yeah, homophobia. Et cetera. You name it. Yeah. And we basically are like, that's not true. There's actually lots of different ways to think about these things. Identitarianism is one of the ways of thinking about these things. And unfortunately, identitarianism um, has a lot of problems. Like, not only um, is it not the only way to talk about these things or the only way to resist these things, but it actually carries a lot of baggage with it um, it's not very effective at doing what it claims to do, and it also, in many cases, reproduces the very things that it's saying it's resisting or deconstructing. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, on that note, like, it's worth pointing out that, like, there's also, like, a right-wing version of identitarianism, um, well, several versions, you know, and that actually, as far as I know, the term identitarianism was actually originally coined to describe like white pride, white nationalist kind of uh, right wing thought um, that was also based around white identity, right? Um, so it's sort of like white identity politics taken taken to a kind of fanatic extreme. Um, and if you start thinking about it that way, then you could think about identitarianism as this big spectrum of of like impulses in politics that all hinge around identity. Um, and there are some that are, you know, more on the liberal side of things or neoliberal side of things. And then there are more conservative um, forms of identitarianism and also straight up like reactionary fascist forms of identitarianism. Yeah. And because of this podcast and like what we're talking about on this podcast, we're going to be focusing on the neoliberal 
type of identitarianism because that is where the nexus is and that is what this podcast is about. Right, the type that is often mistaken for being left. Yeah, it's basically seen as the left. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Like it's taken a huge chunk out of the left or a huge bite out of the left, I could say. Yeah. Um, and sort of like taken up, it started to live inside the, the rotting corpse of the left. <laughs> like a parasite. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think like, yeah, I mean, people don't really, I think people are really afraid to talk about it or address it in any kind of way. So therefore there's not even a lot of discussion about what it even is. And so we're hoping to remedy that a bit with this episode. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yes, uh, you know, we were debating about whether or not to even get into this, but I think maybe we'll just do like a quick, a quick disclaimer about it that, um, sometimes we use the term identity politics sort of like interchangeably with identitarianism, um, I think there's a really good case to be made that they're not exactly the same and that it's it's good to be precise with our language, um, which is why we've we've made the move to like more use the use the term identitarianism rather than identity politics because I think it's just a bit more accurate. But you know, I don't know, you could think of identity politics as sort of like any type of politics like around the world um, that you know is concerned with matters of identity. And so that could include like a really huge broad range of things, mm-hmm. um, including things like, I don't know, like um, Irish Republicanism or like Quebec nationalism or um, you know decolonial movements or like ton- tons of stuff, like really a lot of stuff, uh, yeah. you know, um, movements for the rights of disabled people, right? And so these are not all the same. They're all, they all have sort of different um, um, content and quality to them. And histories. And histories. And they're like really broad and international. So um, you know, we think it's best to sort of like stick to the term identitarianism, um, specifically in quite like a North American context. Um, and so that in particular is what we're going to be unpacking here. Yeah. And it's not just that it's in a North American context and we'll get into it more later, but that it, it, it has its roots in a North American context and then is starting to spread globally via the internet. Yeah. And honestly, in particular, like an American context, an American context. Um, and like part of, I guess, coming into this episode, like, what we want to say is that, like, you know, I mean, like Jay just said, like, identity politics is kind of broad. It can mean a lot of different things. Um, And, like, some of those things, um, I would argue, are, like, useful and could be effective in certain contexts and, like, have been effective in certain contexts. And some, I would argue, are, like, less effective or whatever. Like, there's many different things going on there, right? Identitarianism specifically Um, I don't think is effective, and I think it has a lot of problems, which we'll get into, but part of the way that identitarianism functions within the nexus is that it makes people literally terrified to have these conversations, to critique these things at all, right? So for me to say, like, I think identity politics could be effective sometimes in certain ways, and, like, some types of identity politics are less effective or have problems, like, a lot of people, I think, will literally have a stress response to hearing me say that because... We have been taught to see that as me saying that, like, you know, systems of oppression don't matter, basically. And, like, that couldn't be further from the truth. Like, we really want to put forward a socialism that isn't just economic, but that fully does tackle, you know, anything that dehumanizes people. Yeah, it's literally the whole point. That's the whole point, right? Like, we fundamentally reject any type of domination, dehumanization of any sort, right? And so, like, what we are interested in is trying to create politics that, like, effectively address these issues. And so we want to be able to talk about whether or not the things that we're doing are effectively addressing these issues. And so we have to be able to talk about it. We have to be able to critique it. And we can't just, like, live in fear um, 
of talking about it because it's not going to get us anywhere. For sure. And because most of those systems of oppression are themselves based in a form of right-wing identitarianism, we, we need to at least have the option of thinking about stepping outside of the paradigm of identitarianism as a way to combat those things rather than remaining within the the framework of identitarianism perpetually. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know. So that being said, um, I think that one of the first components of identitarianism that is worth getting into um, and kind of is like lies at the core of what it really means is that it is this impulse within politics um, to hyper-focus on and privilege identity at the expense of all other factors. So, there's a lot of different ways of looking at the world. There's a lot of different ways of trying to figure out what drives history and why your life looks the way it does and why certain people are in charge and why things are set up the way they are and all these different things, mm-hmm. right? We are all um, born into the world and then we have to figure out why it is that way, you know? Yeah. Um, and people all throughout history have been coming up with different ways to do that, yeah. right? There are many, 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 many ways of thinking about that. Yeah. Identitarianism is one. Yeah. And it uses identity as its main um, uh, focus, you know, yeah, its main... It's, um, it's like explanatory, like... Framework. Framework or system. Like, it uses identity to explain everything. Right. But there are other things that you could use, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, like, as Marxists, we're going to say, like, class is one of them. Yeah. Um, other options include, like, God, right? Like, for most of human history, people really thought in terms of their, like, religious myths and ideologies to explain uh, where we come from and where we're going. You know, we came here because God created the earth and we're going to the end of the world where God is going to bring everybody back or whatever it is, you know what I mean? Um, Obviously, those stories uh, vary from culture to culture. Um, You know, there's now, you know, there's scientism. So there's the idea that we can really explain everything with science and technology. And, um, you know, that psychiatry is going to explain the individual um, um, nuances of every person's personality and we can use gene therapy to, you know, all this. Right. Or there's like uh, racism, honestly, is one of them. Right. Like for a long time, um, people in Europe thought that the world was basically like a struggle between different races of people. And that was the driving force in history. Right. Yeah. Um, And so those are all different ways that you could look at the world to try to understand it. And identity is only one of them. Yeah. And we're not saying that all of these systems are all of these different ways of explaining the world are like value neutral or that we should just be like valuing them all equally or that we should just have like a weird hodgepodge where we're just like we need to like consider all of these different worldviews to come up with how we're going to make sense of the world. But what we are saying is that it is important to understand that these are frameworks, they're ways, they're tools, they're ways of thinking about things. Right. And there's many, many different ones identitarianism is one of them and part of the way that identitarianism works in the nexus is that it's it acts as like fundamental truth like it's it's now functioning as like a fundamentalist ideology in the sense that like if you're within that culture if you're in the nexus you're not allowed to question it you're not allowed to consider that there might be other ways to explain things and you know we can look at this at the level of like history you know how to make sense of history but we can also look at this you know, in terms of the level of how to make sense of, like, an individual person's life, right? And so there are many, many factors that that play out um, in terms of a person's life and, like, their experiences and what's happened to them, right? Um, and, like, I don't know, this is a bit of an aside, and maybe we'll get into this. Do it. Well, maybe we'll get into this more, but, like, you know, prior to this, when we were talking about this episode, we were also talking about that the fact that, like, identity and then, like, experiencing a of various oppression are not exactly the same thing either, right? Right. Um, and so, like, it's not the same thing to say, for example, that, like, my life has been shaped by being a woman 
as it is to say my life has been shaped by sexism. Like, they're, they overlap a lot, but they're not saying exactly the same thing, right? right? And in, in identity politics generally, not just in identitarianism, those things get weirdly collapsed and confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and this brings us kind of back to, well, I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast. We probably mentioned it, but um, Karen and Barbara Fields, Racecraft, they talk about this, like the the way that like race and racism get confused and seen as the same thing. But I'm kind of getting onto an aside. Honestly, it's a great aside though. And I'm, I kind of even want to get into the Racecraft thing just like a little bit, you know, um, yeah. as, as a really good example of this shit. So like in their book, um, Racecraft, they talk about um, the situation where there was like a region, I think it was like an area of New York that had like a high um, rate of um, like asthma and, and people had like right. a lot of respiratory problems. And... Um, there was like a newspaper article that was talking about like all the different factors of why people had a lot of asthma there. And then one of the factors was that there was a lot of Puerto Ricans that lived there. Right. Right. And so they're treating the fact of being Puerto Rican as a, a factor, like a risk factor for asthma. When in reality, what was going on was that Puerto Ricans lived in areas that had high atmospheric pollution. Yeah. And right? so like, yeah, a combination of like, racism of like you know economic factors of being driven into these communities where like they had to live amongst pollution is now being naturalized it's being made into a matter of race rather than racism rather than oppression right yeah, for sure or like we saw a lot of this kind of thing with covid yeah. too um obviously like adolf reed got um like was like the classic example where he he got a talk canceled for trying to talk about this exact yeah. thing um as regards race but i even saw it as reg- um um being applied um through the lens of gender um and and sexual orientation where i saw this article that was like uh, queer and trans people. No, I think it was trans and non-binary people okay. are more likely to like die of COVID or what? something. I yeah, didn't yeah. even see that. Yeah, yeah, and and then there and then when you get to like the bottom of the article, it was like because they're more likely to be like survival sex workers and to have HIV and like all this kind of thing. And it's sort of like you're talking about a very specific segment of the so-called trans and non-binary community. You know what I mean? Right. And like 99% of like non-binary people are not survival sex workers. You know what I mean? But if you adhere to this identitarian worldview, then basically you're in this position where you're sort of like, well, I, uh, you know, I came out as um, a non-binary person and I used they, them pronouns. So I am now more likely to die of COVID. Yeah, like, now we're, we're getting off on all sorts of tangents, but I do think that it's, that these are important, and, like, it's, it's, like, it, it's, like, the disparity thing, right, um, that Walter Ben Michaels and Adolf Reed talks about. Like, being a member of a group that statistically is more likely to experience something mm. does not necessarily mean that this person individually is more likely to experience it. Right, of course. Because being a member of that group is just one factor in their life, right? Right. Um, and if that group that they are, they are in happens to, so like in the case of COVID, like if they are in a group that is disproportionately working class, is disproportionately like, you know, living in crowded housing, is disproportionately doing service work, any of these things, those factors are what is increasing your your likelihood of getting COVID, right? right. of course. Um, but if you are also a member of this identity group, but you personally are not working class, you personally are not working in the service industry, you personally like live alone, then you are not more likely to get COVID just because you're a member of the identity group. Right. And so the reason why we're going on about that is because like just to remind you, um, 
dear listener, of what this this component that we're talking about is. It's the hyperfocus on and privileging of identity at the expense of other factors. This is where the other factors are being excluded yeah, by identitarianism. Exactly. It's like like they don't even give a fuck that like the reason why people are catching COVID um, is because they're fucking Uber drivers, not because they're like, you know, they happen to be like Chinese or something. You yeah. Know what I mean? And it's like, I don't know. Okay. I don't want to be generous, you know, and I want to be like, it may not be that they don't give a fuck. It might be that, you know, they, sure, sure, they sure. don't understand because it's never explained. Right. Like, because it's repetitively said over and over again in, in the nexus, like in um, places that subscribe to this identitarian framework, you know, it's, it, it's explained as if it's truth, right? Like people yeah. will be like members of this identity group are more likely to whatever. Yeah. And it's repeated over and over and over again. And then because of the way that the nexus works, if you question this in any way, people will just assume and insist that the only reason you would do that is because you're a bigot is because you don't care about racism or because you don't care about transphobia or because you don't care about anything else. And in fact, the reason that, that we're questioning it is not because we don't care about those things, but because this is not an effective, it's not an effective strategy, right? Mm -hmm. Because if the issue is that the person is an Uber driver and not, you know, the racial category that, that we have arbitrarily assigned assigned to to them, then, then the issue is the, the issue is the um, protections that essential workers have or don't have, you know, it's the labor conditions, their labor conditions. And so if that's really what's going on and it happens that there are due to racism, due to like historical factors, due to like a bunch of things that there are these disproportionate realities where racialized people are more likely to be in some of these situations. Like it doesn't mean that that doesn't matter, but it means that the way to best help everybody in those situations is to literally change the problem, right? To fix the problem. And so we want to be effective, right? And we want to be able to make sense of these social issues, like, so that we can address them. Not, not to like, because part of, I mean, okay, I'm, I don't want, I'm not going to go there because it's going to get into one of the next points and I don't want to get off topic because there's still something I want to say about this, but we'll get into it. But basically it's just not effective. (laughs) And so it's not effective. And the other thing that I wanted to say about this is, you know, in terms of like, um, at the expense of other factors, right? Because I, I kind of went off on a major tangent. But basically, like, I was talking about, like, at the level of, like, human, a, a person's life, as opposed to, like, at the level of history, right? Yeah. And, and some of the factors that are ignored there are... Um, oh, right, right. Yeah, and I don't even remember what I was saying now. I mean, basically, you were saying that, like, you know, um, identitarianism will attempt to explain your life, yeah. you know, through the okay. lens of identity. Okay, that's what I thought I was saying. That's what I thought I was saying. But there are, like, other factors that are not usually, like, you know, considered to be important within yeah. the identitarian framework that, that often um, can impact an individual's life yeah. in, in these really important ways. Yeah. So, go. Yeah. So, I mean, some of these you know, are, like, literally things like a person's disposition or their personality, right? Yeah. And, like, it's offensive because if you are going to say that a person's identity and the meaning ascribed to that identity is more important than that person's own, you know, it's dehumanizing because people are all sorts of things. People are introverts and extroverts. People are nerdy and they're cool. People are fucking, I don't know, like yeah, they're, all, yeah. they're all sorts of things, yeah. right? To like insist that their identity take precedence that it comes over everything first else. And that, that you must be like this because of your identity is dehumanizing. And so there's lots of factors that contribute to people and the way that they are in their lives and the circumstances that they had, like how ambitious they are or like how curious they are or whatever, right? Like there's many, many factors. It's obviously not the only factor, but it does matter. And then another thing that I wanted to say um, 
just to like use myself as an example, because I think that it's interesting, right? Like for me, like when I was, um, you know, really embedded in the nexus and I was really taught to understand things through this identitarian framework, it was really fucking hard for me to make sense of my life trajectory because based on the framework of identitarianism and like what sort of identity categories I get to claim, you know, I'm white, I um, grew up in like a middle-class family, you know, um, I come from like a rural town. I don't know if that matters. I mean, sort of. I think like in like I, I'm kind of reaching here because I'm like okay, so I'm white. Then okay, I'm queer. So I get to I get to claim that. I get some identity points there. Right, right. Um, I'm queer, but like, what the hell happened? You know, how did I go from the daughter of professors who's white, who's supposedly according to this quite privileged, to being a street involved? sex worker, panhandling out on the street, drunk out of my mind in the middle of the day, screaming at people. You know, what happened, right? And using the framework of identitarianism, they're literally, that doesn't make any sense. And in fact, what it does is it sort of, it implies that it's literally my fault. That like, and I've actually seen memes like this within the Nexus that are like, you know. Um, basically, you fucked up your white privilege. Yeah, basically, you yeah. fucked up your white privilege. You had everything going for you. And so, like, if, like, I've literally seen jokes about this about white homeless people that basically you shouldn't complain because you had a great chance or whatever. Yeah. Which is really um, awful. Yeah. yeah. But basically, you know, and so I really could not understand what happened there. But like, what happened there is that I'm a survivor of child abuse. Um, and I developed complex PTSD and people who are incest survivors, like if I actually use, um, and I, I read about it in a, a Bessel van der Kolk book where he described the life trajectory of incest survivors and the life trajectory of incest survivors maps exactly onto my life. Like multiple suicide attempts, self-injury, pr- promiscuity, um, addiction, like running away from home, whatever. Like yeah. it's, it's all there. All the good shit. And so I'm like... That actually is a framework that literally explains what happened. But identitarianism on its own literally doesn't explain what happened, right? And so, like, trauma and, like, um, things like ACE scores and, like, these ideas about um, what happens to people in their childhoods is also something that's 100% left out of identitarianism. And it kind of tries to be, like, reincorporated into identitarianism using things like neurodiversity or um disability right so like once I once I sort of realized that my problem is that I'm severely traumatized and that explains my life and I was still in the nexus I basically got really into like disability politics because that was the only way that I could like talk about that experience using an identitarian framework right? right um but that it's not really an identity it's an experience of trauma Yeah. you know yeah for sure um yeah, and we see, honestly, we see, like, these uh, these pushes within the Nexus to try to, like, turn yeah. various things into, like, pseudo-identities yeah. so that they can be kind of, like, pigeonholed in. And so they can matter. So that they can matter and so that people can, you know, try to, you know, make this kind of unwieldy structure, like, map onto their life yeah. more effectively, you know? But, yeah, you know, some of them work and some of them don't. But, yeah, basically, like, I don't know, to wrap up this component, I think basically the takeaway is that... Can I just um, say one more thing about that? I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, go for it. The, they, the same thing happens with class, and I think that that's worth mentioning because mm. class is not an identity, right? Like, I mean, I now we kind of think of it as an identity, but instead of, like, when there is opportunities for having, like, an economic analysis, like, identitarianism basically will be, like, this needs to be accessible to poor people. Yeah, in- <laughs> like, five ways to make your company accessible to the poor. Right? Instead of being, like, 
can we please, like, liberate people from poverty? Yeah, how do we dismantle capitalism? Like, that is the issue. It's not, like, how do we sort of, like, acknowledge and accept and recognize, like, poor <laughs> the people. cultural differences yeah. between the poor and the rest of it. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that's not the point, right? And so, again, like, I just thought that that was another example about how things that are actually that don't fit within an identitarian framework, we try to, like, plug it into an identitarian framework to be able to include it, and we don't know how to talk about it without that framework. Yeah, yeah, totally. But yeah, so anyways, I think the takeaway from that one is just that, like, they're, like, while identities, like, obviously exist, at least in certain ways, and are, you know, um, focal points for people's lives, and they're very important, uh, blah, 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 um, identitarianism, that is, focusing only on identity and not being able, really, to bring other things into the picture, leads to us missing, like, huge things about the world, and not being able to understand um, things in a full way because we're literally missing the tools and yeah. we're missing like the part like part of the picture you yeah know? yeah okay um so the next one that we wanted to talk about is defining identity identity categories in essentialist and homogenizing terms and so yeah like we've already talked about how identity is in identitarianism identity is sort of like the only way that you're allowed to think about things um, but then identities are thought about in, like, this very specific way. And this is an example. You know, when we started, I was talking about how not only is identitarianism not very effective at, like, sort of doing what it's supposed to be doing or, like, what it claims to want to do, it also actually brings with it this baggage that actually, like, reproduces some of the things that it claims to be mm. against. And essentialism is one of those things. And so, like... A huge part of, like, opposing systems of oppression is opposing things that dehumanize people, right? Like, a big part of the ways that systems of oppression work is that they strip people of their complexity and their humanity and reduce them to, like, tropes and stereotypes, right? Right. And so we want to not do that. Like, that's literally a big part of what it means to be to oppose racism, to oppose sexism. It's like, and any of these other ones, it's that we've realized that like actually we've been handed down this very dysfunctional way of thinking about people by relying on stereotypes and erasing difference within groups, erasing human complexity and reducing people to something that is literally just a trope, right? Yeah, and forcing them into the role of like representing your group. Yeah, which is, it's dehumanizing. And so we don't want to do that Ever. And we don't want to do that, you know, in the traditionally, like, oppressive way, like, the way that the right wing does it. But we also don't want to, like, rebrand essentialism and just do it in a neoliberal way instead, right? And mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. basically, you'll see this um, you'll see this happening constantly within identitarianism. But basically, an example of this is when somebody will tell you um, that X community thinks Y. Um, that is homogenizing because it's basically acting as if X community, which sometimes the community that they're referring to could literally include billions of people. Mm-hmm. So when they use the the acronym BIPOC, how many people do you think fits under that acronym? Like, yeah, like 7 billion or Like so a lot or, of people. Yeah. And so when you make a statement like that and you're like, the BIPOC community believes, and then you say something, it's so profoundly... I mean, it's so profoundly absurd, but it's also, like, so profoundly insulting and dehumanizing because it's 
It's bizarre. It's a bizarre thing to say, and it's said constantly within the nexus and within identitarianism. And sometimes you'll have smaller ones, like BIPOC is a really, really big one to be making such um, large claims about. But yeah, even if you were to say black people, right? And like, or even if you were to say black Americans, and Cedric Johnson um, talks about this in one of his articles where he's just like, yeah, like, I can't remember the numbers. I'm bad at remembering numbers. But basically he's like, the the population of black Americans is like, you know, large. And he was like, it's like the equivalent of Canada. It's bigger. There's more. Yeah. And he like listed like a bunch of other places that it's the equivalent to. And he's like, would you say Canadians believe this thing? Like most people would be like, obviously Canadians don't all believe the same thing. Yeah. And like politicians might be like, Canadians never turn down a challenge or something. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? But everyone's like, okay. Like, you should yeah. Fuck up, you yeah. Know? But it's weird because this is an example of the way that like identitarianism kind of functions selectively. Yeah. And the Quebecois are going to be like, listen. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. But like we... <laughs> Like Cedric Johnson was saying, that like we will generally um, allow for like the reality of diversity within certain groups, like for example, Canada. Um, but yeah. we will not allow for that same diversity when talking about a group like Black Americans, you know, or Black people globally, or BIPOC, right? right. And so it's like that's actually um, it's first of all, it's bizarre. It's not effective because you're not actually listening to what anyone is actually saying. You're, like, imposing a belief onto huge populations. It's acting as if people within identity groups all believe the same thing. And it's acting, it implies that there's, like, some essential quality to people that makes them think that way. Which literally goes back to reproducing the very things that we're trying to resist in the first place. Yeah. I also think on this topic, like, if the way you think about the world is informed entirely by identity... Um, and the the pieces of world that you think about interacting are all identity groups, right? Right. Then you're going to start thinking a certain way, right? And you're going to have other ways of thinking walked off to you, like as we were just saying. Right. And so what that ends up meaning is that when people try to think about things that are going on in the world, they're they're very likely to start essentializing and homogenizing because they have to in order, in, order to, in order to understand anything about what's going on. So, you know, and I think that this can play out in like really weird ways. And like one that we've been seeing a bunch this year, a little bit last year, um, and I had seen it a lot less before, but it did sometimes happen was these, um, these weird racist, um, homogenizing and essentializing statements about, uh, the different so-called races, um, coming from progressives, right? Um, or from people who, who consider themselves to be progressive. And it'll be, like, because they're trying to understand, let's say, colonialism, mm-hmm. which is, like, an extremely complicated topic and has a lot to do with economics and history and a lot of other, you know, factors go into it. But they can only think about it through the lens of identity, right? right? So they're like, well, why did it happen? It must be because... Um, some identities are like this and other right. identities are like of that. Course, yeah. You know, that's the only real yeah. conclusion that you can come to if you're like trapped within an identitarian yeah. worldview, right? So you can't be like, well, the development of mercantilism in like 16th century Europe, right. whatever, you know, you have to be like, well, POC are closer to the earth. Right. You know, which is something that people genuinely say and, um, yeah, we took it off a slide that we saw on the internet. And it's <laughs> and these people believe that they are being anti-racist when they say something like that. And it's like the thing is is that if you make a grand essentialist homogenizing statement about a racial group, whether or not the statement that you're making you think is positive or you think is negative, it's still racist. You're still dehumanizing people. 
and it's absurd. It's yes. like it's it's literally it's racist to do that. Like you can't. Anyway, I mean, it, it's racist in like all the obvious ways, and then it's also racist from like from my perspective anyway, where I'm just like, you have the fucking audacity to um, take like. Or, okay, I'm being a little bit mean. Let me just step that back a little bit. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> trying to be generous. I'm trying to be generous. Yeah, like, people have, like, um, they've had a very poor education about history yes. and anthropology and global affairs generally, you know? And honestly, like, a lot of people um, in North America, regardless of their racial background and stuff, think about the world as being, like, Europe, America, and then the rest is kind of like there's dragons. Yeah. You know? Um, and, like, there's some there's some sort of, like, blurry lumps around there, and there's probably brown people and probably black people, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, whatever. And somewhere in there is China. You yeah, know? And, right. And that's how people think about the world, you know? And they, they have the... Because they think about the world in, in those terms, like, they can they can think about the world as being, like, white people and, like, POC, you know? Yeah. But if you, like, step foot in the rest of the world for, like, five fucking seconds, you know, it's, like, really clear that, like, the so-called POC who are, like, inhabiting the dragon-inhabited areas yeah. of the globe, like, do, <laughs> do not think of themselves <laughs> as all the same people. Yeah, of course. You know? And have their own complex histories. Yes. They have their own complex histories. And actually, when I even say their own, like, that's kind of a ridiculous way to put it because their histories are also our histories. They're all interconnected yeah. and literally always have been. Yeah. Like, the, the I mean, yeah. with the exception of, of the Americas being cut off from the rest of the world, you know, and Australia too, um, you know, there, there have always been these, like, complicated interactions between people in every part of Afro-Eurasia. Yeah. And then also within the Americas, there were also complicated interactions between all of those people. Yeah. You know? Um, so anyways, the, the idea that there's such a thing as sort of like the POC world and then like the colonialists is just like such a blinkered way of thinking about the world that can only stem out of an extremely privileged perspective um, that really privileges Europe as the only sort of like active actor yeah. in in world affairs. Yeah. Which I think is racist. It is racist. So that was another like, very long tangent. Yeah, we're going on tangents, but, but um, no, I think it's important. And hopefully we're going to get into more of these topics in more detail Um in the future. But basically, like, yeah, like, I mean, one of the things that came to mind um, um, when when you were talking about that, and I'll only just mention it briefly because maybe we'll get into it in another episode, but um, I was just thinking about um, Michael Brooks's concept of cosmopolitan socialism that I just heard him talk about recently, and, like, I want to listen to more of what he has to say about that. Um, but Basically, yeah, he's basically just saying that, like, any kind of serious politics really needs to account for the fact that people globally and historically have thought about things in all sorts of different ways, you know? And you really can't gloss over it with such a crude paintbrush of, of just using these broad um, identity categories. It's it's completely missing the complexity of the picture, right? And so, like, a socialism, um, it needs to be global, it needs to be historical, it needs to actually seriously contend with, like, the specificity of what people have been doing and are doing in all different places of the world. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, totally. And identitarianism very strongly does not do that, right? And not only um, on these larger scales, again, where we're talking about, you know, history and, like, large populations, but also um, on smaller scales where people are seen to be, um, like, secondary, like, their own personality, like I was saying earlier, like, their own, whoever they are and what they think about themselves and their own politics and their own ideologies and their own worldviews 
is seen as secondary to the identity that is supposed to define them, right? And it can become incredibly fucking condescending, actually. Um, Absolutely. Because people... People who are seen as marginalized within identitarianism, who reject identitarianism, or who have different ways of understanding themselves in the world, are often seen as, like, sort of, um, like, misguided, or, like, they just haven't awoken um, to reality, right? <laughs> like, they're, they are seen as, like not truly aware of their circumstances. Right. Um, and, like, I don't agree with the way that every single person understands themselves in the world, right? But, like, it's it's very condescending to just dismiss that um, and be like, oh, sorry, you just don't really understand things, right? Like, you need to actually engage with it and what they're saying. Totally. Do you th- so do you think we covered that? Yeah, I think so. Um, for now, anyway. I mean, it's related, too, to, to the next one, um, which is the the impulse to categorize and rank uh, everything and everyone according to identity groups, right? And, I mean, just to connect it really briefly to what we were just talking about, I know we have a lot more to say about this one, but what it makes me think of, first and foremost, is that, like, yeah, when you take, like, these gigantic masses of people that are all, I mean, they're all individuals, and they all have, like, all these different identity categories and also other things about them, but you're trying to ca- you're trying to categorize them, like, into, you know, a, um, an easy-to-understand sort of, like, graphable kind of... Um, you know, system or framework, you are going to start like running into the fact that um, all these identity groups have subgroups as well, you know? Um, So, and, and they have intersections, right? So this is like intersectionality is basically just pointing out obviously that, um, or I say obviously, but our listeners will probably be aware that intersectionality points out that, you know, if you are part of one identity group, you're also part of another, you know? So if you're like black, you're also a woman, Right, and then you're uh-huh. a black woman, and that's like a it's kind of an intersection of the two, but it's also kind of its own thing. Um, but interestingly, what happened in identitarianism is you know we started to um, acknowledge and and recognize more and more of these sort of like sub identity groups, uh-huh. um, and simultaneously, every time we would sort of like get one of them pigeonholed, we'd be we would then um, homogenize it and be like. Now that we've um, gotten it down to, you know, black trans women, mm-hmm. now we can say black trans women think this, that, and the other. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so anyways, yeah. But but anyways, yeah. So categorization and ranking is like a, a major component of, of identitarianism. Yeah. And like this kind of gets into the next one. Um, but I kind of want to say it here because basically like why the ranking, right? Like what's going on with the ranking? I get it. Identitarianism is dividing groups up into identities and and with a special focus on marginalized identities, right? Because the idea is that marginalized identities are experiencing these specific oppressions and we want to um, correct that. Like, if I'm being generous, like, that's what identitarian thinkers would say, right? They're trying to correct for these um, oppressions that people experience, so we need to focus on these particular groups, right? But so why the ranking, right? Like, if there's all of these different oppressed groups, why do we need to rank them against each other? Because if we are honest and we are inside the nexus, we know that that's what people do. They rank them. Absolutely. And there's sometimes weird wars that pop up where people try to decide which of two groups is more oppressed. Like, for example, are binary trans people more oppressed or are non-binary trans people more oppressed? That has been a bit of a war it's been going on for a while right um and you'll see this play out in like lots of different ways where there's this um this really strong desire to decide who is more oppressed out of groups that we are admitting are both oppressed like from the beginning right 
And so why is that happening, right? Mm-hmm. It seems bizarre, but it's very, very normal um, within within identitarianism and so much so that if you're in the nexus, like you might not have even have questioned this because it's constantly going on. Right. And like people have called this the oppression Olympics. Like that's some, that's a phrase that gets used to describe this, this ranking. Yeah. But basically like there's this sort of assumption within identitarianism. It's very, and I mean, this is why I'm getting into the next one, but I kind of need to get into it here. It's very like, um, it's not actually like a radical or transformative vision of the world or of like what we're trying to do because it's not actually trying to do something like overthrow capitalism or like make sure that every single person has housing or make sure even that every single person has healthcare. It's instead, it's trying to be like, okay, things are really fucked. Things are really bad. But with the little bits that we have, with the tiny scraps that we have under global capitalism, you know, how are we going to divide these up? And that's basically what we're doing. We're arguing over scraps, right? And so, and and these scraps can come in all sorts of forms. They might literally come in, in for example, like I was at this um, event that had like a, um, it had like a, a clothing swap, right? And so everybody brought clothes um, and they brought like nice stuff to this event. And then, you know, you'd go through and you'd pick out clothes and you'd take clothes. Um, and so because they, there was a lot of nice clothes, they did this thing where they were like, so for the first hour, it's um, BIPOC, trans, and disabled people nice, nice. can access the, um, the the clothing swap first. So they get like first dibs on what's there, right? And so like the purpose of that is to be like, look, there's only so many clothes. And so we want people who are more oppressed to have first access because we know that, you know, they don't like they're experiencing these other oppressions, right? And like... It obviously doesn't work for the reasons that we talked about earlier, because as we said, a person being trans does not actually tell you 100% what their financial situation is and whether or not they can afford to buy clothes, right? There might be a person who's at that event who is not disabled, not BIPOC, not trans, who actually has no fucking money and has holes in all their clothes, you know? Yeah. And that person should obviously go first. Right. Because that is the person with the most need. Right. But for some reason, we don't do that. We don't say, like, hey, would the person with the most need go first? Yeah. We just assign it to these categories, and we're like, these categories generally have the most need, and so therefore they should go first. Which is inaccurate and doesn't actually get us what we're supposedly trying to do. Yeah. But it also fundamentally, you know, it doesn't, like, address the larger question of just, like, poverty or people not having enough money for clothes, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the greater issue. And so like the ranking has to do with this, like this, this real scarcity, like it's not a scarcity mindset, it's a real scarcity under capitalism. And the fact that there isn't a lot, um, we don't have a lot. And instead of like, you know, actually trying to band together through solidarity, um, and to see that, you know, we might, some have more and some have less in varying degrees, but overall we're all pretty fucked. Like, you know, overall, we're still extremely exploited and on a planet that is being destroyed by terrifying capitalists. For sure. Another thing worth pointing out about this um, categorizing and ranking impulse within identitarianism is that their actions, right, to categorize and to rank are actions and they take time and they take energy. Um, right. And, you know, their activities that people are engaging in, right? Um, and, in fact, in the Nexus, like, when you get right down to it, like, if you look at the content that the Nexus is putting out, like, so fucking much of it is literally just ranking and categorizing different identity groups with regard to each other. Um, like, if you kind of, like, cut down all the fluff, 
Like, that's what it gets down to, you know? Yeah. A lot of it. Not all of it. A lot of it. Um, and that represents an enormous amount of labor yeah. um, and thought and energy that people are putting into this. Yeah. That could be going to other things, you know? Um, and we're basically, like, we're in this, you know, the fucking... The house is on fire, you know, right. and we're the little dog being like, this is not really exactly fine, but, you know, okay, my metaphor is breaking down. But I basically mean, everything's fucked and we're, and, we're, and we're trying to, we're spending all our energy trying to be like, who exactly is more, who's most fucked here? This is what I picture and this is the weird image that came to my mind. Okay, tell me. The house is on fire and we're literally trying to divide up the cutlery. Like as the house is burning, we're like, okay, we got to take this cutlery. But now we're arguing like who gets this fork? Right. Who gets how many forks? Who gets how many spoons? This is like, they're like we got to divide the cutlery fairly based on like who deserves it the most as the house is literally burning down around us, right? Right. Um, and, you know, obviously, whatever, it's not that... I, I, I'm so mad that I even have to, like, fucking say this, but it's not that, like, people who critique identitarianism don't care that some individuals are having, like, a fucking harder time than others, yeah. you know? Literally the whole point, the whole point, is that we want to eliminate that state of affairs. Like, that is why we are socialists, right? Yeah. Um, and we believe that socialism is a better way to eliminate that state of affairs than um, what we're about to get into next, which is um, representative, liberal, individualist reformism, which is the the political basis of neoliberal identitarianism. Um, So you want to tell our listeners a bit more about this one? I mean, I feel like I was already kind of talking about it, but yeah, it's basically like the idea of like, we're just going to kind of, you know, move the pieces around on the board or like just like shuffle shuffle the deck but like we're not actually in any kind of way transforming the larger um situation right um and so yeah like everything is symbolic a lot of things are really like symbolic um and like i'm not trying to be dismissive because i actually think that the reason that this this kind of politics is so appealing to people is because it's like the capitalist realism thing that mark fisher talks about where it's like you know, people now believe it's much easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, right? People are so, you know, worn down and really do not believe that profound transformative change is really possible, right? And I get it. I get why that kind of nihilism exists because it's fucking bleak, you know? And so people are, are more invested in this sort of like symbolic stuff in representation because, it feels like something is happening. It feels like you're doing something important. At least you're recognizing and acknowledging there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, you know, and it feels like you can figure out who the enemy is, the bad guy is, because, you know, this person who has, according to the ranked identities, like some more power than you do can now be turned into a scapegoat for the entire capitalist system, for the entire, you know, all of these other systems of oppression, everything in your life that is fucking you over. Well, you can blame this other person because they're like whatever totally, totally. a cis hat white man for example totally and it's like but that person you know compared to a lot of other things really doesn't have a lot of power either um also could have all sorts of other things going on um in his life so yeah and it's and also like turning him into a scapegoat and like banning him or yelling at him or making jokes about him is not actually lifting you up either like it's not actually getting us where we're trying to go yeah um and okay so like another thing is that identitarianism or let's say identity politics more generally are 
obviously able to mobilize like a huge amount of emotional energy yeah. in people. Um, identities are important to people, like really, really important, you know? Um, and whether that's like baked into the human condition or that's whether that's like a function of the kind of like time we live in is, an, is another story. But like identities are important to people. You can motivate people with identity. You can create big social movements around identity, you know, or at least things that look and act like social movements. Um, and I think that the people who like run shit are aware of this, right? They would have to be very stupid to not be aware of this. Um, in fact, I know that they're aware of this. And so, and we also have to be aware that like there is a push and an impulse um, from people in power to try to co-opt um, movements, right? Yeah. Um, they they want to make sure that there are no movements happening that are dangerous to the state of affairs that they currently govern, right? Yeah. Obviously, because they have interests, right? They have clear material interests, which is to maintain the state of affairs. Um, and so when we think about identitarianism as a generator of social movements, you can also think about um, how would they then be co-opted right. if they were to be co-opted by the governing um, elite. And I think that it's pretty clear that they would much prefer identitarianism as as the generator of social movements rather than, say, socialism, because um, identitarianism is very, very, very easy to co-opt. It's very easy to turn into liberal reformism, yeah. right? Because it costs, um, you know, the captains of capital literally absolutely nothing yeah. to um, to play representative politics with identitarians, you know? Yeah. They're like, okay, so you want, what, you want, like, more trans people on the board of directors? Like, literally fine. Like, like fine. Yeah. Like, who cares? You know what yeah. I mean? You want, you want us to have, like, a, I mean, the CIA did, like, that hilarious, like, woke ad or whatever oh, recently, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, this is, like, rainbow neoliberalism, whatever. Um, they're happy to do it, man. It doesn't cost them fucking anything yeah. to, to be to be to to play ball with representative politics um and i mean I've, i think i've said this before in the pod but i'll say it again and again and again and again because i think it really gets the point home the one group that um capitalists and powerful politicians will never um talk about giving more representation in um you know corporate boardrooms more representation in politics whatever is uh workers yeah they will never do that yeah and there's a clear reason for that right yeah. but um you know, um, whether it's like a racial group or like a sexual orientation or one of the kind of classical or classic identities, they have no problem with that. It doesn't cost them anything. Yeah. And the thing is, is that all of those people, for the most part, I mean, not all of them, but the majority of them are also workers, you know, but we're being taught, I'm being taught, I should think about my interests as like a bisexual, not about my interests as a worker under capitalism. Right. right? And, and you're being taught that if there is a billionaire bisexual who is who is person, being paraded around yeah. as the representative of queer people, um, that that person shares your interests. And that is on my team. And that is fundamentally untrue. It's fundamentally untrue because they have interests as a billionaire, which yeah. are completely opposed that to your interests <laughs> as a fucking worker. Yeah. And that is their identity. They are a billionaire. <laughs> their identity um, is that they own your life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, um, I can't remember the videos, and maybe you remember, um, but it was like a recent Jacobin video um, where they quoted Martin Luther King, and he said, like, basically, he was like, up until now, we've been dealing with the politics of decency, and, like, that's fine, but, like, right now, we want equality, and that's going to cost you billions, yeah. something like that, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but that was the politics that is, like, profoundly threatening. Yeah, like, that guy was a fucking socialist. And, and not okay, like, they're not going to accept that, because they don't want, like, 
when I say they, I'm talking about capitalists and I'm talking about like governments that protect capitalist interests and like people who are invested in the status quo as it is with this huge class discrepancy. It's like they do not want people organizing for the vast redistribution of wealth. And like, you know, I believe, and like obviously, like, you know, this is what Martin Luther King was saying is that like in order to address racism, we have to vastly redistribute wealth. And that doesn't, that actually doesn't mean a poor white person like Venmoing a poor black person. It yeah. means redistributing wealth from the fucking ruling class to the rest of the people. Yes. You know? That's what it means. It means getting rid of these massive, massive, massive disparities and being like, you're not allowed to be a billionaire. I don't care if that's your identity. Yeah. It's not allowed. And you're not allowed to own the entire productive capacity of an entire industrialized country. I'm sorry. Yeah. And like this, I mean, this is the kind of thing that is going to most profoundly lift up the most people. And because of the way that racism works and intersects with all of this, this history of class oppression, it's going to disproportionately impact people who also experience racism, right? Um, And that doesn't mean that we don't also need to deal with things like racist attitudes and this, that, and the other. Sure, of course we do. Um, But part of what getting rid of this economic disparity means is it means that if somebody's being a racist dick to you, you actually have the power to to fucking tell them to fuck off because they're not literally like your employer who you need that money because you need the healthcare or like whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, like economic power, it gives people the freedom to walk away from things and to say no to things in a much more profound way than people stuck in poverty can, you know? For sure. If you believe that racism is prejudice plus power, um, we need to fucking deal with the power. We need to deal with the power because honestly, it's very hard to change people's minds about their prejudice. Yeah. And I mean, not that we can't, not, not that, that we, we can't. shouldn't, but like, but, I mean, yeah, like, if you can empower people to the point where they it literally doesn't fucking matter. Like, because, look, think about it. If you're, like, white and somebody calls you, like, a I don't even know what, like, a bad name for a white person is. Like, a cracker, I guess. We don't really say that in Canada as much. But whatever. It's an example. Like, it doesn't matter to me. Like, it doesn't affect me in any fucking way because I'm whatever. I'm fine. And there's no um, function of being white specifically that is going to make me be disempowered or make me more likely to be disempowered or whatever. You know what I mean? So if we can make it so that all people enjoy this, that kind of, um, what, what identitarians like to call a privilege, um, then we can make it so that racism, like racist attitudes are much less damaging towards people. Yeah. 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 We need to like take the teeth out of it. Um, so we kind of got way off topic there, I feel. Yeah, but maybe not. Maybe we didn't. I don't know. It's okay. We're talking about, yeah, like we need more than just lip service. We need more than just um, representation, more than just, um, you know, making one person who's like supposedly representing a group. If that person becomes a billionaire, then we should feel like that's some kind of, or even like, you know, a millionaire, we should feel like that's some kind of positive change for the group who the majority of them are living in poverty. Like, yeah. Etc. Yeah. Um, do you feel like we covered that? Yeah, yeah. Wait, I think we can move on to the next okay. one. I mean, whatever. It's kind of all over the place, but it's totally fine. It's a classic uh, fucking canceled episode. You know? I mean, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, go, we we like to go on tangents, you know? But yeah, so the next one is... Um, uh, it's like about like epistemic deference is what some people call it. So it's like the authority to speak and make truth claims. Mm-hmm. It becomes grounded in identity, right? Yeah. We got into this a little bit. Everyone who's ever been around the Nexus has seen like a zillion examples of this, but basically it's just like you are allowed to make claims that are, are unquestionable. Um, 
if you are a part of like a, a certain identity. Um, well, claims about certain types of claims. Yeah, exactly, and that's important. Yeah, claims specifically about your quote unquote identity. Yes, but also only if it is actually backing up identitarianism. Right. Also, that if you don't, <laughs> if you are making claims that are grounded in your identity that challenges identitarianism, people will totally dismiss that and also weirdly try to strip you of your identity. Yes. Um, which is bizarre, but largely people will they will make identitarian claims by grounding it in their identity, right? And, um, I mean, another, like, weird thing that they like to do is they'll make um, identitarian claims grounded in other people's identities. Right, (laughs) and that goes back to the whole, like, the X community thinks Y, right? Like, they will just be like, you know... I mean, people have literally told me that, like, the black community has said this, and they read it on Twitter, and so therefore, like, this is what the black community thinks, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then they, but I'm like, that's, you're telling me what you think. Like, right. you're <laughs> the one who's actually telling me what you think right now, but you're not even taking responsibility for the fact that you think that. You're, in fact, like, attributing it to this group that you're homogenizing, whatever. So yeah. it's it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what, um, the way that this functions is that, if you're not a member of a particular group, you're not allowed to talk about that the oppression that that group faces. You're not allowed to think your own thoughts about it. You're not allowed to like um, disagree with identitarian claims on it, even if you know many of your thoughts are grounded in like your reading and your conversations and your thinking about ideas that are coming from people who are in that group who are not identitarians. Yeah. Right. Um, and so. Yeah, like, for example, this entire episode is extremely problematic and cancelable because we're talking about racism. Like, we're talking about, like, I mean, I don't know if we mentioned other systems of oppression that we don't personally face, but probably. Um, And so because, you know, I'm white, I'm not supposed to be talking about racism. Like, I'm not supposed to be thinking critically about racism. I'm not supposed to be saying, like, ideas about what I think would be a good idea to challenge racism. Um... And so, basically, the idea is, is that if somebody is in an identity group and they tell you something about that, the oppression that that identity group faces, you just need to unquestioningly believe that. Yeah, as long as it is in line with, with identitarian basic design. identitarian tenets. Yeah. yeah, and if it's not, then we just pretend that that's not happening. But, like, yeah, and so... um I mean, I think that people get the picture of, like, how this plays out, but I'm not sure if we could be a bit clearer about it. But, like, basically, um, you know, people will say it all the time, like, as this, as that, you know, I, like, as a queer person, blah, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, And then they will also say, like, you know, as a white person or, like, as a straight person, like, you don't have the right to, to say that, like, take a seat or, like, stay in your lane or, like, whatever it is, right? And, like, maybe people listen, to me it's obvious why that is wrong, but, like, maybe people listening to this, maybe we need to articulate why it is wrong a little bit more. Well, yeah. And, I mean, okay, so there's, like, the basic point, which is that, like, uh, the content of people's arguments also matters. Yeah. Not just the identity of the people saying them. Yeah. Which, like, I think, to me, is just, like, a fundamental and obvious thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I also understand why there's there's pushback against that, you know, um, because, you know, if you're used to people, um, 
you know, kind of like talking over you and, and just like assuming that you don't know what the fuck you're talking about because they are racists or something like that, then obviously, you know, you're not going to be like super keen on just like playing like debate, mm-hmm, whatever, mm-hmm. with like annoying fucking people you don't like. That makes sense. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but when we are talking about um, trying to come up with um, ways to deal with complex social problems that we're facing as a civilization, um, and we're trying to come up with, you know, ways um, to adapt socialism to the 21st century, and we're trying to, you know, have these discussions that are really important about really important topics, we actually do have to be able to evaluate arguments by their content. Um, not just by the identity of the speaker. We have to be able to do yeah. that. And what's so weird about identitarianism, we've already mentioned already, yeah. um, is that we we literally already do this within identitarianism, right? Because like if a black conservative is like black people just need to be more entrepreneurial and like stop uh, you know, leaving their baby mamas, like people in the identitarian sphere are gonna be like, that is like super inappropriate and like we don't like yeah. that fucking black conservative, you or know. Or like if a black socialist um, is critiquing identitarianism and is saying, like, actually, you know, the causes of COVID are these material things that are happening, not somebody's race. Yeah. Um, and I'm referring to Adolf Reed here. It's like people will literally call him a racist and cancel his talk, you right. know, um, when actually he's overtly opposing racism and essentialism. And his whole thing is that he's trying to do that, yeah. Yeah, and it's like, but he's not, he's not you know, saying the identitarian, you know, um, whatever he's not playing by the identitarian rules and so like yeah that's obviously a problem um and then also like the idea that like i just want to make it really simple right the idea that lived experience gives people this this truth about the situation and that if the person says that truth you have to listen to it because you don't know because you didn't live that doesn't make sense because if you were to take two people who have very similar lived experiences, you know? I mean, first of all, there's the fact that we said earlier that just because you're in an identity group with someone does not mean you've had similar lived experiences. But even if we took two people in that identity group who do have very, very similar lived experiences, and then you were to ask them, like, philosophically, ideologically, politically, how do you make sense of the world? How do those lived experiences shape your understanding of the world and about what we should do? You're going to have profoundly different answers it actually isn't true that, like, lived experience just fundamentally, like, flows into, like, political ideology in this, like, smooth way. It doesn't, right? Yep. And so what this means, and, like, I think part of part of where this leads us is that it means that, like, you actually, um, you can't hand off the responsibility of your politics and, like, your ethics and your principles and, like, what you think about things to, like, whatever marginalized person is standing in front of you and just throw up your hands and say, I don't have the right to have an opinion about this. Because it's not just that you have the right to have an opinion about this, but it's that you have the responsibility to have an opinion about this. You actually have the responsibility when when something like racism exists and is dehumanizing people, you know, when we have capitalism, when we have whatever, any of these topics, you have the responsibility to think about these things deeply. You have the responsibility to try to figure out how to act ethically in relationship to this stuff, right? You can't just do what you're told. And if you're just doing what you're told, it's actually like, it's pretty offensive because people could just tell you all sorts of things, right? And you're just going to do it. Yeah, for sure. So basically like identitarianism uses identity to bolster truth claims that it makes. um, And the truth claims that it bolsters using identities are ones that 
um, reaffirm the identitarian narrative. Yeah. So it's this kind of like cyclical situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that that's like one of the most crazy making things about identitarianism. Yeah. And when people step outside of that, like you see it happen where people are literally like robbed of their identity. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know? Um, it's like the whole thing that people are like, oh, the only people who critique cancel culture are white. And then you're like looking at them because you're like, are you like, where are you getting this? Because there's, you see that that's not true. Yeah. Like you literally know that that's not true. So like, what are you saying about the people who like are not Exactly. Right. And then in some cases it will literally be as a person, like whatever, they'll start being like, okay, well maybe you're not white, but like, you know, you're like white passing or you're light skin or something like that. Proximity to whiteness. You're upholding whiteness. Yeah. And there's like all sorts of ways in which that person's identity, which five seconds ago they were holding up as like the fountain of truth. Yeah. As soon as the opinion is not in alignment with like the nexus and with identitarianism, suddenly like they're being robbed of that identity, which is also very offensive. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I feel like that probably makes that clear. Yeah. So I'm going to go to the last one. Yeah. So... Yeah, the last one, um, I just kind of threw this one in here at the last minute, but I actually think it's important that we just mention it. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Um, And basically, it's American centrism, which is that this ideology comes out of the United States of America. Yeah. Which is a specific place. I'm just letting you all know that. It's a specific place. It is actually, it's a country. It's a place. And the things that are going on there, and the history that it has, and like, the specific politics that happen there are specific to that place. Mm-hmm. And not everywhere in the world has those same histories, those same frameworks, those same politics, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, they all have their own histories. There's different ones. And so, like, this is important. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to tell this. I don't know how to tell you guys this. Um, but basically, it's like, yeah, so, like, what happens is that, you know, I think that identitarianism as a framework does a bad job of even explaining the complexities and the specificities of reality within the United States. You know, I don't think that it does a good job even of that, but it's basing its assumptions and it's, you know, it's fundamental frameworks on a very specific American reality. And then it is exporting that globally. And so what you see is that like totally different countries, totally different places, it's spreading. Like obviously first it spreads to the Anglosphere. So it's happening in English speaking countries first. And now it's leaking out into countries that are not English speaking. Um, But people are being expected to think about themselves and their own local and specific realities through the lens of the United States of America. Yep. Yep. Using um american like racial categories to understand themselves even though those are not the racial categories that they historically have been using um so we you know you come across uh uses of the term like bipoc in like you know in like romania or something and right. it's like who's like indigenous to romania as romanians are right you know um or um trying to adapt american and you could say like Anglosphere ideas about um, non-binary gender in language right. to languages that like literally cannot yeah. have non-binary gender. Um, you know, um, yeah, like so there's a lot of different examples of this kind of thing. Um, and it, it really just it, it doesn't work, you know, like and and all of these places actually like have their own kind of like histories yeah. of struggle and their own 
contacts that are happening right now. Their own contacts that are happening right now, exactly, that are not the same as what's happening in the United States of America. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm reminded of like a just like a thing that happened in Canada. There was like a, a minor politician in Nunavut. Um, oh, yeah. Who, so Nunavut is the northern uh, territory, the northernmost territory in Canada that is the homeland of um, most of Canada's Inuit. Um, who are an indigenous uh, people who live in the north. Um, and there was a, a minor politician in Nunavut who made like a Facebook post that was like Inuit lives matter mm-hmm. um, and then got basically like taken down as like a racist, you know? Um, and it's just like the context in Nunavut is l- not the same as the context in the United States of America. Yeah. Um, and this person, whatever, was just trying to make, like, a, a very obvious statement. Like, it's obvious what they were trying to say yeah. with that. You know what I mean? Um, it wasn't supposed to be, like, at the expense of, of black right. Americans. I mean, this goes back to the whole, like, ranking thing, right? Like, yeah. there's only a lot... This phrase is only allowed to be used by one group, and if you're using... If you're also saying that, like, this other extremely oppressed group that their lives matter that that means that you're being racist towards black people yeah it's literally based in this mindset of like profound scarcity that we can't say that more than one group of people's lives matter like right for sure yeah um you know especially a group like you know black americans who you know outnumber inuit by like a factor of like a zillion um have like you know millions of times more like wealth than Inuit do um, have whatever, you know, it's it's a different different situation. It's a different situation, you know, and there is nothing in the American, you know, racial categorization system or whatever, um, or uh, like American identitarianism in general to make sense specifically of, let's say the Inuit experience in Canada. Yeah, Um, totally. And there's so many examples of that globally, right? Right. Right. That was just like one that came to the top of my head. Yeah. And so, Basically, and of course, like, it's always very invisible that this is happening, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it it can even be seen as just, like, you know, how, you know, people all over the world who are using, like, social media are expected to only post about American politics anytime there's, like, some big American thing happening, right? And if you're not posting about that, you're, like, literally a bigot and an asshole. But it's, like, are Americans posting about the local politics of all of these different countries constantly? Like, no, they're not, you know? Like, sometimes there will be certain global things that, like, blow up and become really big. But, like, overall, they literally don't even know what is going on in all of these different countries, right? And yeah. so, yeah, yeah, and this goes back to, like, Michael Brooks's um, cosmopolitan socialism, which is just that, like, you literally, you can't try to understand the world with a framework that is, like, developed from a very specific location in history and then, like, just try to, like, forcibly map that on to the rest of the world in all sorts of different contexts. Um, It just doesn't work. Yeah, and honestly, it's a form of American imperialism. Yeah. It's a form of American cultural imperialism. America's gigantic weight as, like, a cultural powerhouse and a cultural producer and the economic center of the industrialized world and really the entire world means that they export their ideas to us and we often don't even know that that's what's happening. Yeah. You know? Um, Canada is, like, you know, very much, like, in the shadow of the United States. Like, we consume, all, like, so much of the everything, all the media we consume is American. Um, Quebec is, like, a little bit different because a lot of it is, you know, most people here speak French as their first language, and so they consume less American media. But yeah. even, even French-speaking Quebecois um, consume huge amounts of American media. Um, and, you know, in Quebec, like, American identity identitarianism is making like a huge um 
appearance, right? Like yeah. it's really starting to penetrate like deep into into Quebec politics, even though it's you know the it's the political worldview of a foreign country. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, it's worth pointing out. Um, Americans often don't notice this, but other people in the world also often don't notice this because we're so used to it. Yeah, and especially with the internet, with social media, you know, what's happening on your feed can just feel like what is present and what is relevant. But, like, I mean, are we even aware of, like, you know, like, I'm being taught to care more about what is happening in the United States than what is happening, like, in my own city, for example. Yeah. Um, Which is not... I mean, it's not effective, right? Like, it's where can I be of the most use and the most good is probably going to be within the context in which I'm actually living. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually wondering, because I have no idea how long we've been talking for. Uh, about an hour. Only an hour? Mm-hmm. Did you want to go into this? Yeah, let's go into it a bit. Okay. Um, yeah, so, like, we also, we didn't want to leave this as just being like, uh, blah, 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 we don't like identitarianism, so that's it. Um, we wanted to, you know, try to offer some not exactly like solutions but some like alternatives like some other ways of thinking about things and we don't want to go into like a ton a ton of detail but yeah we do want to try to you know offer some yeah just some alternatives yeah because we don't just want to be critics like we we think that the questions that you know um that identitarianism claims to try to answer are important questions you know we um really do want people to have everything that they need we want people to be safe from dehumanization from domination from exploitation from all of these things regardless of the form that they're taking and so we want to help think through possible solutions right so so one of the solutions um basically to like the the problems that we face as a society is universalism so universalism is basically the idea that we just kind of give everything to everybody that like we give everybody everything that they need um and we kind of give everybody the same and that's basically like the kind of like universal uh social programs that that social democrats and socialists want right yeah and can i say something about that though uh yeah it's just universalism i think is the idea that that people have universal needs right yeah that people have there's certain human needs that people have so for example every human being needs to eat food Every single human being needs housing. We need access to clean water. Um, we need clothing. We need health care. Um, and then if you want to even be, um, you know, go further, we need education. You know, we need, like, communities. We need, like, emotional support. I don't know. What are some more human needs? I mean, yeah, the, you know, uh, you know, various kinds of, like, guarantees of, like, different kinds of freedoms i think are important yeah. needs and um, protection yeah yeah safety you know um uh, in canada heat yeah uh, <laughs> heat's very important it's <laughs> an extremely that. important one um and okay so so universalism is important uh, for socialists and social democrats right and there is um a critique of universalism right and it is that um you know universalism um, sometimes we'll kind of forget that people also have specificities to their needs. Um, and so if you, you know, just give, um, like, I, I, you know, I can imagine being like, okay, so everybody, um, is going to get, uh, you know, a certain like 
a, a food basket or something, right. you know? Um, and it's going to have, uh, we're in Quebec, so it's going to have like a baguette and it's going to have some like nice cheese. And I can't um, eat this. <laughs> Clementine already can't eat it. Um, and it's going to have, you know, like these grains and these vegetables and they're part of the like traditional suite of sort of like Western European vegetables that people like to eat in Western Europe and whatever, because the people who are devising this food basket come from a certain cultural background. Right. And, and so that's, they're like, this is food. This is the, the food yeah. that we eat in here in Montreal, you know? Yeah. Um, and and then I imagine um, somebody who just got their sick free government house um, and they happen to be from uh, Nunavik. So they're from like the north of Quebec and they um, don't eat cheese because it goes right through them. And they don't like to eat bread because that's not real fucking food to them. And they want uh, caribou, you know, yeah. and they want uh, seal meat. And they're like, why is there no seal meat in my food basket? Right. You know, um, and so, you know, like, you know, you can sort of chuckle at that example, but like, that's actually a real example, you yeah. know? And so this sort of points to the need to have something that goes a little bit beyond a sort of like basic universalism. And I just kind of came up with the term like a textured universalism to describe what that could look like. And that's just basically a universalism that acknowledges the basic human needs of every person, um, but also tries to provide them in a way that is, you know, culturally informed, is aware of the various like historical and ethnic and uh, economic and whatever like backgrounds of like all the different kind of like segments of the, of the demographic population, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think that like a textured universalism is one way to address um a lot of the the things that identitarians like claim to trying to be addressed, um, while also offering um, a real alternative to uh, capitalism. Yeah, and I think mm -hmm. like you know sometimes the critique of like universalism, like the sort of assumption that that universalism is like is secretly just about like a cis hat white man, I guess is what they would say. Um, I mean, like I get that. But at the same time, like, it is just fundamentally true that human beings all need to eat food. Human beings all need housing. Human beings all need healthcare. Um, and there are just, like, literally needs that human beings have. And I think sometimes with identitarianism, with this, like, very intense focus on difference, it can be, like, weirdly dehumanizing in a way because it's acting as if people don't, that their needs are somehow so, so, so different, you know? Yeah. And so that is why, like, I like this, I like the wording of textured because it's it's just shaping it. Like, it's being like, these are needs that literally everybody does have, um, but, like, they might just be textured differently. They might have a bit of a different um, shape to them to, like, fit the specificity of specific human beings because human beings are not all the same, even though we do share these profound similarities in our needs. For sure. And, like, to be, just to like, sort of, like, make it clear, I am not suggesting that you know the the socialist government of the people's republic of quebec should um you know make like a, a racial database of like everyone who lives here to like so that we can right. like be like oh you're like one quarter chinese so you can have like a one quarter of a rice portion or something like that and you this know would I mean? be like an identitarian way of doing it right exactly it would be like this weird yeah identitarian it would way mean that there's options yeah you know? because and, people need options yeah and, and like people are different one from the other you know i don't know like back in the day like i remember there was like one food bank that like i love to go to and it was like um i think it's a good example of this and it was like um, it was like one of the only food banks that didn't you didn't need to show where you lived. So anybody it was because usually the food bank is like in this neighborhood that you live in, and that's the only food bank you can access. But it was like a food bank that was like just for anybody in the city. Um, and there, they actually had options like 
they had vegan options. They had like a variety of different options that people could choose from instead of just like your standard, like, you know, one tuna, one peanut butter, whatever. Right. And it's like, because when I would go there, like I was still a vegetarian then, even though I was poor, I was still a vegetarian. And so like, I couldn't eat it and they wouldn't give me another thing. So I just got less food, right? And so, like, this is, like, an example of being, like, look, like, we're going to have a variety of options for people to choose from um, to meet their specific needs while still providing everybody with food. Yeah, and, I mean, to, to use another example, um, I try, I'll try to not go on too long about this, but, yeah, to use another another example that kind of stems from the work that I do, um, there are, like, these housing first projects, you know, and they're you know, the, the goal behind them is really good, right? Like the, the goal is like what people, what homeless people need is a home. You yeah. know, we have to give them a fucking house and that'll solve really a lot of problems very quickly. Right. But it's not always so simple, man, because like a lot of people who are chronically homeless and I'm not talking about people who lost their job, had a bad stroke of luck, whatever, ended up on the street for 30 days. Um, I'm talking about people who are chronically homeless, have been on the street for years and years and years. Like, if you just give them the keys to an apartment, like, it's not necessarily going to go well, man. And a lot of people, you know, travel with their buddies and they, like, they're used to a certain corner and 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 whatever it is. And, like, if you just put them in an apartment in a suburb, um, you know, off the island of Montreal or whatever, where it's, like, really difficult to see their friends and they don't know anyone and they have no car to go to the grocery store and, like, whatever it is, like, they're not going to prosper necessarily, right? Yeah. So maybe you need a bit more texture to your, like basically universal program Absolutely, you know because yeah. that program is going to work really really well for like Jean-Claude who fucking lost his job and right. and his girlfriend like took uh, his fucking car and he's whatever and he's like had like a mental break and he found himself on the street that guy just needs an apartment yeah like all he needs is a fucking apartment he's gonna be fine yeah you know more or less um but it might not be the same for for somebody else yeah exactly and so it's like it's like a genuine attempt to meet people's needs and and even though we have these universal needs it's like they're the shape of them is going to be different depending on the specificity and that and those specificities do not map perfectly or accurately onto identity categories so we actually have to be more specific than that Mm -hmm. so i feel like that probably covers it i mean we'll probably get more into a lot of these in other episodes because we want to talk a lot about this stuff but for now we're trying to speed through and not be talking forever so the next thing that we have for like what to do instead is solidarity instead of allyship. And so part of the way that identitarianism functions is it, as we've said, like it creates these like identity groups that you belong to. And, you know, it, it tries to like, um, I guess it tries to like remedy the severe hierarchies that exist by sort of like reversing those hierarchies and being like, you know, within identitarianism, like people who are marginalized have, have this kind of contextual power within the nexus, right? And so people who have um, power in outside of the nexus or like whatever, like they're in a position of privilege, um, are expected to be allies, right? And they're expected to basically like, in many cases, just sort of like do what they're told like they're not actually encouraged to have like a responsible relationship to those actions where they think deeply about them and like actually try to like understand why they're doing what they're doing but they're basically just being told like you need to do what we're telling you to do this identitarian thing um and you're doing it as an ally and like the problem with this is that it really it makes people enter into it in this kind of, I don't know how to explain this. It's like a kind of dishonest way. It's like people don't want to do things 
like, it's kind of like the charity model. It's like people don't want to do things just because they should or because it would be the good thing to do. Or because they're being told to. Or because they're being told to or because, like, whatever. Like, people want to do things from, like, a genuine real place, right? They want to do things because they make sense. They want to do things because they're in alignment with their actual, like, principles and, like, thought-out values. And they want to do things, importantly, and I don't think that this is a bad thing, they want to do things because it helps them. You know, people want to act in their own interest. And so a lot of the way that identitarianism works, which is not, it's not very strategic, guys. I'm just letting you know. (laughs) Like when you tell people who are already don't have a lot of power that they need to give up the little bit of power that they have to people who have less power and that that is the way forward, that is not a good selling point because people are like, I already do not have a lot of power. Also, when you tell people your interests are opposed to my interests and I want you to do things that are in line with my interests. Yeah. Like that is strategically like not a great sell. Cuz people they they want they of course they care about their own interests, right? But you know, conveniently actually for the left, the working class, we do have these shared interests, right? And I'm not saying that all of our interests are exactly the same, right? And that's part of what solidarity means. It means struggling together for our common interest while at the same time understanding that like I mean it is in our common interest that we're all doing well enough to struggle together, first of all. Mm-hmm. And that means also that, like, certain people, we're going to need to struggle in specific ways in order to support our comrades to be able to struggle with us, right? To the common cause, which is liberation for all. Right. Um, and so it is not this, like, self-effacing, kind of, like, groveling, kind of, like, you know, I'm going to Venmo you even though I don't have enough money in my bank account to necessarily get groceries this week. Yeah. You know, like, that's absurd. It's actually being like, how can we together try to lift ourselves and each other up? And, yeah. and understanding that our liberation is, like, profoundly tied together. Yeah, for sure. And and it's being like, you know, whatever. Yeah, say there's, like, a GoFundMe because there's, like, a, you know, whatever. Like, you can pick, like, a number of identities, like, person who um, is being, you know, um, kicked out of their, like, parents' house and... Uh, they need like an apartment, but they don't have income because of X, Y, Z. So they need income. So they're on GoFundMe, right? Like from a perspective of allyship, you're supposed to be like, okay, so this person is like more oppressed than me. My goal, uh, sorry, my role as an ally is to remedy that by giving some of my money to them. Right. Basically, um, solidarity, um, by contrast would say that my interests are aligned with their interests because it is in both of our interests for there to be a safe and fair system of housing for all people yeah. so that everyone who needs a home can have a home yeah. with the minimum of fuss and the maximum of safety and comfort, yeah. you know? Um, and it is in both of our interests to not have a class of people whose entire thing is that they hoard housing and then charge you for it. Yeah. So that's in both of our interests. Yeah. Therefore, like, I can struggle with you in solidarity to change the way that the entire housing system is run. Yeah. And that is um, a way longer process. Yeah. It's way, way harder to do. 
Um, it is not something that we have the infrastructure for right now in the year 2021 in North America. Um, I mean, obviously there are like groups that work on housing justice and stuff for sure. And they're doing great work, but you know, in general, we don't have like a big, like socialist movement that is trying to overhaul the housing system, but we should. And that is the point. Yeah. And we're suggesting that we actually need to be like, we were talking about like all of these, you know, endless debates about like, you know, basically yeah, ranking identity categories or like deciding like you know if it's oppressive or not to ask people to say their pronouns or like whatever it is you know if we actually started to move this energy towards concrete projects like housing for all that this would actually be more beneficial for all of us and this is not to say that in that example that you shouldn't donate money to that GoFundMe right? yeah yeah, yeah. because not? it's like you know, in like... the meantime you know people people can't wait you know, to abolish landlords to have housing now, like they need it now, right? So, like, if you have money in your pocket, yeah, and you're still you got you got food and you're okay, and you're and it's true, man. Like, honestly, it's generally poor people who are the most generous in that regard. You know, like when I didn't have any fucking money, like due to a situation that happened, like literally the person who came and shared food with me got their food from a food bank. You know, and so it's like poor people are fucking generous we should all be generous like part of socialism and like moving towards socialism is practicing generosity but not from a place of being like you're somehow different from me and so I'm going to give this to you because I like have to or because I feel sorry for you or because it's like my duty in the sense that like yeah like it's like one-way relationship no it's like it's because you're a human being and because I would want the same for me. Because if I'm hungry, I need to eat. Yeah. And if you're hungry, you need to eat. Yeah. And if that guy over there on the corner asking for change is hungry, he needs to eat. And so it's literally like this commitment to everybody's humanity and being in solidarity in the sense that you understand that every human being has these same basic needs that you have. And so basically it's like treat people how you'd want to be treated. Like act together as humans towards the ends and not tallying up like who deserves it we all deserve it like that's the point you yeah. know yeah um so i feel like that kind of covers that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i think we should just move on to the last one we should kind of like start wrapping it up a little bit okay. yeah um which i don't know honestly like it, it all kind of ties together like we think that socialism is just like an antidote to identitarianism in, in a really real way and like socialism um, and universalism offer these ways to have like a bigger picture way of looking at the world um, that that factors in, you know, more factors than just identity groups um, being in a, locked into a struggle with each other um, that can explain a lot more of like history a lot better, can explain like why we got here better than identitarianism can. Um, and I really think that we should try, we should be trying to teach people about like a socialist worldview, you know? Yeah. And we're talking about a kind of socialism that is like this textured universalism that we talked about. And we're talking about a kind of socialism that is this cosmopolitan socialism, um, that, that Michael Brooks talks about. And like, I think that there's this, like, obviously there's this accusation of class reductionism, um, that comes up when people are like, we want, um, economic redistribution and we want, socialism and we want universalist programs because people are like okay but those aren't the only things that affect people's lives and like absolutely not and we believe that a socialism like ultimately socialism should be a political struggle to meet people's needs yeah and those needs are not just economic right Mm -hmm. um and so of course a socialism should also be fundamentally 
in opposition to anything else that dominates and dehumanizes people. And that's important, and it does need to be said. And it's also important, like, I don't know, people have this idea, I don't know even how this happened, but people have this idea that, like, whatever, like, that the working class is, like, these, like, white factory workers or something like this, White guys in plaid shirts. Yeah, and it's, like, that's, that is not and never has been the representative of the entire working class and the exploited peoples under capitalism, right? Of course not. Of course not, right? And so, I mean, I guess it needs to be said at this point, but, I mean, of course not. And so, yeah, like, lifting up people who live in poverty and meeting people's needs so that they don't have to, you know, like, drive an Uber endlessly um, and not be able to feed their kids or, like, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, Like, that's what we're trying to do. And so... Basically, what this means is that we're actually trying to set our sights a lot higher. Like, we're not actually settling for, you know, Amazon being, like, Black Lives Matter. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you fucking, you, you like, literally at the same time, like, you know, destroyed the, the unionization that was trying to take root, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. Anti-racism sponsored by fucking Amazon is not revolutionary politics. Yeah, it's not. And, like, so we actually want to be... Well, we want to be abolishing Amazon, um, but we'll start with unionization. But but I'm like, no, the whole thing's got to go. No, we're going to nationalize all of his assets. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the idea is, is that we want to be, we want to have bigger goals. We want to be able to break out of this like capitalist realist depression where we're just kind of like nothing is possible. So we have to settle for this. Like we actually want to be, and it doesn't mean that we have all the answers, man. Like we're just two fucking podcasters, right? We're not out here trying to be like, Oh, I have all the answers. But the thing is, is that what I want is for people to start talking about this shit again, coming together and trying to organize. Yeah. Or honestly, I would settle for at least being able to fucking talk about this shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like identitarianism just fucking like caps it off. So you just can't. Yeah. You know, and uh, that's like really bad for the left, man. It's like a really sad, scary, fucked up thing, you know, that a lot of the people who honestly have the most kind of like energy and heart um, who really do like sincerely care about other people. That's why they get fucking sucked into this shit. Um, like end up in this position where they like can't talk about the things that they're trying to fucking yeah. think about. Because and like, they don't have the tools. You know, I would fucking love for there to be like a fucking think tank or many of them for people to be getting together and sitting down together. Many different people with many different, you know, even like different frameworks and like different ways of thinking about things and to genuinely be working together to answer questions like what is the best way to fundamentally and permanently eradicate racism? You know, I would love that to be a question that people were rigorously and seriously thinking about Mm -hmm. and not just like repeating these like sort of fundamentalist catchphrases that we say inside the nexus that aren't getting us anywhere, you know? Like, I want people to be doing this seriously and rigorously and collectively to try to come up with answers and not acting like we already have all the answers because we don't. We have a lot of amazing thinkers and a lot of amazing history to, like, read about and to learn about that we can draw from, for sure, and I think we need to be doing a lot of that, too. But we also just need to be able to think and ask questions and work together and, like, be allowed to be wrong, be allowed to change our minds, be allowed to be creative, be allowed to be like, what about this thing, you know? Um, and so, like, the suggestions that we're putting forward on the podcast are, like, you know, based on, like, our own, like, endlessly long conversations that we constantly have about all of these topics. Yeah. Um, but when I was deep in the nexus, I was too afraid to have any of these conversations. Like, I never talked about this stuff, right? And I was just like, no, I'll just do what I'm told. And that did not make me an effective political actor. It did not actually help me to be responsible for my role in, like, trying to change the abysmal situation that we're in. Yep. 
For sure. For sure. And I mean, I don't know, like we, we've been talking a lot about race, but like there's all these other identity categories that are like really important to the nexus too. And like gender and sexuality are ones that like, we also like really need to be working on. Like we have to be working on it. Like, I don't know. In one of our earliest episodes, we talked about how I think like, honestly, like the rift between like the different like types of feminism and like uh-huh. the, the different sort of like understandings of like queerness and, and gender, like are, it's fucked, man. Like we, we have like these like super contradictory impulses like all kind of like uneasily coexisting on the left when it comes to like gender and sexuality um and sexual orientation and like um i don't know it's it's like really unresolved and we can't talk about it yeah that's the thing like people who really try to like rigorously talk through it um if they're even anywhere close to the nexus they get like nuked from orbit yeah you know and then when they're outside the nexus i mean it's like yeah yeah Yeah, and so we want leftists to be seriously thinking about all of these things. We want to be figuring out a way to meet everybody's needs. We want to be fucking thinking about how to end capitalism and save the planet. And we don't want to fucking be fighting for scraps about it. We don't want to be fighting for scraps. Um, And we really want to build a politics that is based on, like, a profound, like, respect for all human and ecological life. Like fundamentally you know and so how do we do that and of course there's lots of different ideas about how to do that but I believe that that's the project that the left should be working on and so you know honestly man like I don't even want to have a podcast about this it's annoying like I'm just like I don't care like it's a waste of time in some ways you know like I want to be moving on to the next thing you know and we could only dedicate like we kind of had to rush through the second part of this episode because it took us a long time to actually unpack and explain what identitarianism is right Mm. and in the future like we're gonna have a lot more stuff that we want to do about like what the fuck to do and we're also grappling with that and trying to figure it out but like that's what I want us to actually be thinking about what to do instead what to do next how are we going to you know address these serious problems that literally include the extinction of our species um what are we going to do about it you know and we're not going to get there with what we're doing inside the nexus i hope that we've argued that point yeah sufficiently and 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 i hope that um what we've been saying about identitarianism has given some people uh some more tools for thinking and talking about the um the see this women you know yeah and And if you want to argue for identitarianism if you believe in it or if anybody believes in it i'm like Fair enough, you're allowed to. We're all allowed to believe what we believe, but I would appreciate it if instead of shutting people down who disagree by just saying that they're, like, bad people or they're bigots or canceling them, that we actually let you seriously defend your position, you know, and and explain why you think that this framework is effective and, and what are the goals of the framework and how you think those goals are being carried out. Because I think we have a responsibility to ask those questions if we really do want to resolve these problems. Yeah. So anyways, that's it for episode 14. Um, um, I hope we didn't go on for too long. Yeah. Um, oh, P.S. Uh, we have a Patreon also, which is patreon.com slash fucking canceled. Um, and you can send us hate mail at fucking canceled at gmail.com. Uh, fucking has no U and canceled has two L's because we're Canadian. Thank you.